The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I'm Maura Aarons-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. Each episode, we look at stories from business leaders who have dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change in the future. If I told you you're about to hear from someone who first tried to take his own life at age 13, has spent a lifetime burdened by clinical depression and suicidal impulses, and who finally found solace after electroshock therapy, you might expect to hear from someone who sounds a little bit like his mouth is filled with cement, whose sadness and malaise and trauma just oozes through the airwaves. But on the contrary, you're about to hear Paul Greenberg, who sounds exactly like what he used to be, a charismatic radio sports announcer. Despite living through deep and chronic depression for decades, Paul built an incredibly successful career as a media executive and CEO. As CEO of College Humor, digital president of Time Inc.'s lifestyle brands, EVP and GM of TV Guide Digital, and VP of Business Operations at MTV.com. And today, he runs his own fast-growing company, Butterworks. I think you'll really enjoy the conversation with Paul and I and learn a lot, be surprised by his positive attitude in the midst of severe mental illness. But we do talk about suicide and suicidal thinking. And if this is an issue that will um, trigger you or upset you, I wanted to let you know that we, we do talk about that. So, Paul, you wrote, I worked nearly three decades of 10-hour days during which none of my colleagues knew that I was struggling. How is that possible? (laughs) (laughs) I honestly wish I could tell you. Um, It was brutal, but there was some ability I had to parcel out the, the work that needed to happen and kind of, you know, containerize, if you will, the, the issues of, of how I felt and what I needed to get done. Um, sometimes the work was a solace where I could mm. focus on something else besides the depression. Often, however, it was a slog, really working hard to get through it. Um, the, you know, I talked to my doctors, um, you know, some of the treatments that I've had, which I know we'll discuss, have been quite aggressive. Mm-hmm. And I've had very few side effects, but they theorized that maybe the reason I had few side effects is that I exercise quite a bit. Mm. And so maybe there's good blood flow to my brain, um, which they also theorized might have been one of the reasons why I was able to tolerate the depression in the first place. So talk us through what a, a day that was a slog felt like. I mean, you were in leadership positions. I assume you were dealing with other people's problems, right? As a manager, leading meetings. <laughs> what did those slog days feel like? Um, exhausting, Sisyphean. Mm. Uh, you know, I would, I would get up in the morning. I was fortunate not to have the kind of depression that made me unable to get out of bed, but I would get up 
And I would think, okay, I just need to get through this day. You know, I, whatever I have to do, I'm just going to keep pushing the rock up the hill. And I, you know, every day or every minute, I would have almost constant suicidal thoughts of, I want to kill myself. You need to kill yourself. And I wasn't visualizing actually killing myself. I just kept hearing those thoughts. Mm. And um, that was exhausting enough. But then there was this weight, this heaviness that depression gives you of this physical pit in your stomach, in addition to the other things that depression does to you, which is to catastrophize everything. So nothing will ever work out. We'll never get through this. I'll, you know, I'm going to lose my job and be homeless and everything will fall apart forever. Um, so all of that on top of everything else. Um, but I would go through my day and I would get to work and I would focus as hard as I could on the people around me mm. and trying to feel needed and trying to understand and be as empathetic as possible to what I could do for them and how I could help them. And somehow that made it a little easier to get through the day to feel like I was part of something and I was part of something bigger. And I had a mission that connected me to other human beings and that, you know, I had a responsibility to these people that I had to lead them, um, not in a sort of power hungry, obnoxious way, but that was my job. But as soon as I had any downtime, you know, I, I wasn't in a meeting or I was just eating my salad at my desk, the depression would rush back and I would feel hopeless and anxious mm. and angry and frustrated. Um, and then as soon as I had to go to my next meeting, I would kind of shake it off and push through. Uh, and it was, um, it, it was one of the hardest things I've ever done, but it almost felt like I didn't have an option. I really just felt as if I, if I stopped and, and succumbed in any way, um, it would take me over and I would never be able to get out of it. So it almost just felt like I had to keep the inertia on my side. It seems it's interesting first that you 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 express such empathy as a depressive. Normally, we don't think of people in clinical depression as having empathy for other people because that's one of the things that depression does, right? It makes you very, very focused on your own misery and catastrophe. What do you think that having the empathy did for you? Was it something that you cultivated or do you think it's just who you are, you know, relying on other people and getting drawn out of your head by other people? I'm, I'm a very social person. I'm, I guess, definitionally an extrovert where I get energy from being around other people. But I also think, um, not to pathologize my depression too much, but, um, you know, I, my, my depression honestly could have gone one of two ways in terms of how it came to be based on events in my life. Um, I could have, you know, turned it outwards in terms of getting angry at everybody else and feeling like it was everybody else's fault. Or I could have turned it inward and sort of beaten myself up and thought that I was a horrible person and I was useless, which is what happened. Mm -hmm. And I think that in a way made me more sensitive. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't, again, I don't mean to self-aggrandize, but I do feel like somehow that made me more in tune with what I was feeling, the pain I was feeling, and then the pain that other people might be feeling. And so in a weird way, I felt almost more sensitive because I was depressed. I think that's true. I, I, I absolutely, I think that people who are in the state of depression or anxiety and know it so well that it is their life, if they can understand it at some level, are able to see in other people the things that a lot of others can't see. It's a, it's a, it's a horrible gift in a way, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. but it's, it's a it's gift true. nonetheless. <laughs> well, uh, but I also think that 
you know, I've been in therapy most of my life since mm-hmm. I was 13, um, some more successful than others. But when you spend that much time looking at yourself, looking for causes and effects of human emotion and transference and uh, unconscious feelings, you do begin to understand there's a lot more going on below the surface for all human beings. How does your depression manifest itself? Like you said that you take it inward, yes. right? Yes. Is it a script? Is it the suicidal thoughts? Is it is it always the same every episode? Um, it's a good question. I, I yes, I think it is. Um, for a while, it was one long episode. I mean, literally from the I tried to kill myself when I was thirteen. And literally from the time I was 13 until I was in my mid 40s when I had uh, ECT, um, I was depressed basically consistently. I mean, it really never, it wasn't sort of up and down. It was just there all the time, um, just living with me. And so that script was constant. Um, since the ECT, I've had um, a couple of down episodes. Uh, recently, I had a very down episode, which was the first time since ECT six years ago that I've felt as bad as I felt that must have before been scary. I had the ECT. Really scary. It was, it's, it's, it was less scary and it, but it was, it was certainly, it made me feel hopeless because it made me feel again, which is what depression does to you, uh, but was also a characteristic of my depression, which is this will never get better and everything will be terrible and no one will ever love me. And I will never be able to succeed. And my business is going to fail and I'm going to end up living on a box on the street and I'll fail my family and my kids will starve. I mean, just, and just, and it went on and on and on. And Oh, by the way, on top of that, I'm a horrible person and, and there's nothing about me that's lovable. And so that is consistent throughout my life. And then you know, you add on top of that and I should kill myself. I want to kill myself. And some of the the suicidality is I want to end this suffering, but for me it was more of it was it was slightly parallel to the depression where it just felt like an add on in the sense of it's important that I think about this. It, you know, I need to. I'm such a bad person that I need to kill myself. It was almost again turning it inward on myself. I need to hurt myself or punish myself for being such a bad person to the point where I deserve the death penalty at my own hands. Oh my god. Um other uh, sorry, other no, people I think, okay. you know, for them suicidality is I just need to end this pain. For me it really was more like I said pathologized of I hate myself so much I deserve to murder myself. Now I I think that you're a you're a dad and you're a breadwinner, yes? That's correct. How did that relate to your keeping going? I mean, do you think if you hadn't had the family, this would be a different story? No, I don't think so. I just think that's how I'm built. Mm. Um, I want to succeed. I'm I'm very ambitious. I like to succeed. Um, it didn't help the depression go away, mm. uh, my success. Um but I do think that, although I would, I would say to some extent, you're right in the sense that I really had no safety net. If I can use the suicidality as a safety net, you know, it was almost like saying you're just killing yourself. Isn't an option yeah. because you've got two kids that you have to support and you have a family you have to support. Um, Even though you're a failure so, and you're going to go broke and it's all going to. Exactly. Yes. Precisely. I, exactly. <laughs> I never said I was, I was logical. Um, I, I know it well. <laughs> Exactly. Right. But I do think that there was something about um, in a weird way that kind of made me angry. 
Mm. You know, it, it drove me, but it also felt like, well, you know, these kids are making it so I can't kill myself and in my pain. How dare they force me to stay alive? Which obviously on its face is absurd, but, um, but, but I think for in, in a good way, it did take, it did remove that option in reality. I, I would say that until I had the ECT, which removed the wall of depression, therapy was really useless. It just, I couldn't hmm. get at any, the root of anything because I was so sick, you were so just, sick. you know, mentally ill that I, you know, I mean, and again, I, I see mental illness as the same as physical illness. You know, you have a, a broken leg, you can't walk and until it heals. And if you have mental illness, I couldn't feel happy until I was able to make it heal. Well, let's, let's talk about treatment. Um, how many meds over your life do you think you've tried? Probably 75. Wow. And nothing worked. So you tried electroshock therapy in 2013? 2014. 2014. How did, how did you all come to that, you and your, your medical treatment team, I assume? Like, was that the yeah. last straw? Were you scared to try it? What, what happened to get you there? It was the last straw. I was really down. I was I was worse than I had ever been. Um, and my psychopharmacologist, Dr. David Kahn, who is just a genius, uh, he, he is affiliated with Columbia University, um, but he'd been working with me on the meds and trying different things and nothing worked. And several times he had said, okay, I think it's time for ECT. And I thought, I've seen one flew over the cuckoo's right. nest. No way are you getting me strapped into that thing. Um, and finally... You know, they say when you're in enough pain, you change. I was in enough pain. And I said, okay, I'll do anything you suggest. So he got me into the ECT outpatient program at Columbia. Um, and, you know, it's it's not anything like one flew over the cuckoo's nest anymore. They give you a general anesthetic. They give you a muscle relaxant. So literally, you know, you count backwards from 100. I got to 88 and then I woke up and they said, do you want some apple juice? And they had done the, the treatment. Wow. One thing I was super fortunate about, which I alluded to before, is I had almost no side effects. Yeah. So um, ECT can cause short-term memory loss, nausea, headaches. I woke up and I went straight to work. So I had I got oh to Columbia at 8 in the morning. They took me right away. They did the treatment, which the treatment itself, I, I don't know if you want me to go into what it is. Yeah. Uh I'm happy. So, so ECT stands for electroconvulsive therapy, and they are literally convulsing you. They are inducing a grand mal epileptic seizure, right. which is actually what they think heals your brain, not the electricity per se. They just need the electricity to create the seizure. And, and what's weird is they kind of don't know why it works. They know that it does. It's 85% effective with drug-resistant unipolar and bipolar depression, which is amazing. I mean, just off the wow. charts amazing. So I went in, I had, um, three days a week for four weeks. And after the 12th treatment, uh, it was Sunday morning. I was in the playground with my kids and I suddenly felt happy for the first time in my adult life. And I really didn't know what was going on. I thought maybe I was having a heart attack, or something, but it just, this albatross that had been around my neck for so long lifted. And I just felt physically lighter, emotionally lighter and the sun looked different and the kids looked different. And I just felt, wow, I am actually happy. Um, did you, did you was, know that, did you know that this feeling was happiness? Did it take you like, were you to take you? I wasn't, no, I didn't know. I, I, I never felt it before. I, I just, I knew it was better. Yeah. I knew, you know, I knew the, the, the pain had diminished. So that was great. 
So uh, then we started tapering. So I did it twice a week, once a week, once every two weeks, et cetera, et cetera, for another eight months and never had, have not had to do it again. And it was, it was a medical miracle and it is one of them. And, and what, here's the thing is that I, you know, I would sit in the waiting room, the outpatient waiting room, and there were a number of people there every day. I mean, a, a fair number of people, this isn't like I'm the only person who gets ECT these days. So there is, it's just something people don't talk about because it's got this terrible stigma. So take us uh, through to the present day. You had the ECT in 2014. It's 2019. The ECT, yep. Yeah. So I, um, I was doing okay for a long time. Um, a few, like I said, downs, but I actually went back to see Dr. Roman and said, do I need a, a touch up mm. of ECT, which they say you can go back for if you, your depression comes back. He said, I don't think so. I, if you say, it sounds like you're just not feeling great. And, and, and he was right. It passed after a couple of weeks. Um, this year I had a, a, a huge new, I, I was actually, because as I mentioned before, the ECT allowed me to do real therapy, I actually came to a lot of realizations in the last few years that I never was able to, that I probably should have in my twenties, mm. if I had been able, if the depression hadn't been this big wall in my way. So I finally came to some of these realizations, which were incredibly painful about my childhood and my life and what's going on. Um, and that kind of sent me back into more of a depression and it got better and it got worse and it got better and it got worse. And then, um, actually about a month ago, it got really bad and it got as bad as it was before ECT where I was depressed all the time, terribly suicidal, very upset. And Dr. Khan, God bless him, pulled another um, magic trick out of his pocket and said, okay, it's time to try ketamine. Hmm. And um, I thought, okay, I've heard of ketamine. I know it was a club it drug. It was a club but drug in the early 2000s it's that I, guess. Yeah, it's okay, exactly. Um, actually, ketamine was invented in 1962 as a, an anesthetic hmm. to, use, for, to be used medically. So then in the late 90s, um, it started to thaw the, the academic climate, and they started looking at ketamine for depression. And in 2000, uh, a couple of people at Yale had great success with it. And in fact, uh, this year, Johnson & Johnson has had a ketamine nasal spray approved for depression uh, by the FDA. It's now being sold. Um, and so... It's in a way it's been validated. It's it's actually interestingly enough, it's a slightly different variant. It's what Johnson and Johnson got approved was a, a portion of what the full ketamine drug is. Mm -hmm. But get, the way I got ketamine is uh, intravenously, mm. and it's actually ketamine. It's not the Johnson and Johnson variant. Um, you go for forty minutes. You get ketamine intravenously. Um, you do. I felt you know sort of loopy and a little spacey for, you know, 25 minutes. Um, and then you come out of it and it works really, really fast. Um, within four to five hours, they say your suicidal thoughts go away, your depression can go away. Those effects aren't lasting unless you do it several times. I was going to say six, six, you have to go every week. Is it, is it like a course of chemo? It sounds a little bit like a, a yeah. course of chemo. So, so I went Monday and Friday, yeah. the last three weeks. Um, yesterday was my sixth treatment and my, this depression that I was talking about is totally gone. My suicidal thoughts are totally gone. Um, and, uh, and so now I'm just going back to sort of taper and maintain and it's it's new so they don't know a lot about how to maintain and but I, but ultimately what you're getting is a relatively small dose right. so it's not addictive and it is somebody i just read that that a psychiatrist called it the most ketamine specifically the most incredible advance in psychiatry in the last 50 years 
The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. Higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. I actually, I would like to shift a little bit to, to leadership and management because, because of your extraordinary success. And, you know, you're, you're talking about this with me. When did you go public with your depression and why? Like, you know, why at that moment did you decide? I, I read about you in The Hollywood Reporter of all places. Yeah, that was the first time I went truly public. Um, I wrote about my depression right after Robin Williams committed suicide, mm. which was shortly after I finished ECT. And I thought, Robin Williams, you know, if, if he wanted to commit suicide, and I know there were some extenuating circumstances, but I just thought if he wanted to commit suicide, it could affect anybody. And, and so I wrote what you basically read, but I shared it only with friends. Mm. And within a week of, of, uh, each other, Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain committed suicide in 2018. Mm -hmm. And I just thought this is an epidemic that I have to speak out against. I have to destigmatize this. I have to share my experience. And to your point, you know, I'm a normal looking quote unquote successful guy who's got a family and has run businesses and blah, blah, blah. So if it can affect me, it can affect anybody. And it, and it doesn't, and I don't mean affect anybody, meaning you have to be depressed, but you know, somebody who's depressed or it's in your family or you're living with somebody who's depressed or you're, you know, whatever. Um, but it is absolutely stigmatized. You know, I mean, it, it and I said this to, to Dr. Khan when he said, get ACT. I said, well, what am I, he said, you know, you may have, you may have to skip work for a month. I said, I can't, what am I going to tell him? He said, well, let me ask you a question. If you had to get a stent put in your heart because you were having a heart attack would you stop going to work and go to the hospital? And I said, of course. He said, this is the same thing. This is a medical illness. It just happens to be in your brain as opposed to another part of your body. And so until we're able to see that, it's never, people are not going to get the help they need. And so I just felt, I mean, and, and they both, Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, both had kids near my age. And I thought this is this is a, an epidemic of monstrous proportions. Twenty five percent of the people in the country are affected somehow by depression, and yet it's humiliating. You know, the, the mean, veil it, it, of it, shame it, is 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 so intense. But 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 I will ask you: When you went public, were you working for yourself at that time, or were you still? Yes, I was. Do you I was. think so that I was, made a difference? Honestly, I think it. I think it made it easier yeah. um, because I didn't have to check with HR and, you know, the, the press department. And I didn't have to go to the CEO and say, hey, this may affect the stock price. Right. And, uh, you know, it, it was really my decision. But I think if even if I had been working at a big company at that point, I would have pushed unless they just said you absolutely can't do it for whatever reason. I would have said, OK, now is the time to tell my story because it just got to 
I don't know. Those two suicides, obviously, I didn't know them personally, but we felt like we did, though, didn't we? I mean, especially people our age who grew up, you know, when I graduated college, my mother gave me for my present a Kate Spade bag. That was all I wanted as my coming out into the world. And you watch these Anthony Bourdain shows and, you know, he's he's our John Wayne. Right. I mean, he's he's rough and rugged and he goes out and he sees these cool cultures and does all these amazing things and is so miserable he had to commit suicide. And you're just thinking, well, the, the disconnect, the dichotomy is so great, but I know that dichotomy of being in constant pain and yet pretending you're not and pushing through. So why not tell everybody else who's in that pain, there is help. You have to work hard to find it. I mean, I went through 75 drugs to find it and, and finally found it somewhere else. But giving up is, is, is brutal. And too many people give up partly because that's what depression does to you. It makes you feel hopeless in addition to being depressed. But I was hoping that I could tell my story and, you know, destigmatize it to some extent and let people know there's an opportunity to get healthy. Well, so to you have a culture to create at your own company. How does, how does your life story inform the culture that you've created? Um, I'm very honest. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my team knew I was going for ketamine treatments. Mm-hmm. I said, I'm sorry, I can't come to this meeting. I'm going to be in ketamine treatments. And I, you know, maybe a little loopy the rest of the afternoon. So I can't do it. And it wasn't saying I have a doctor's appointment. I'll be busy. Mm-hmm. I just was very open about it. And, you know, you really, you begin to destigmatize it by talking about it as if it were normal, which it should be. And, you know, it's like, oh, I'm sorry, I have to go I don't know. I have to take my car in for a, a tune-up. You just, you know, if you say it as casually as that, people kind of look at you funny for a while, for a second. But then, if you just say it like, "Oh, you know what? I can't be here today. I had my therapy appointment this afternoon," and they they start to use it as the vernacular of normal conversation. And so, trying to create that culture of like, and then you know, people started to ask me about it, and then they they felt like they were intruding. But if I was able to say, no, please, I want to talk about it. Yes, I was on ketamine. And this is what it was like. And this is what happened. And this is, you know, these are the doctors. And then, and it's unbelievable how many people have come up to me now and said, oh, you know, can you make a recommendation for a doctor for me? Mm-hmm. You, you, you know, you, you do have to look for lots of different ways to get better. It's not, there's not just it one. It takes a village, one, doesn't it, though, too? It's it like you have your care team. Yeah, right. You have your care team, but it takes persistence to try lots of different things because not everything's going to work and and some things work better in conjunction with other things. Do you think that if you saw a young person at your organization or you know in the course of your professional life who's not the boss, right, who can't stand up and say I'm going for my ketamine because they may feel that that would hurt their future, like what's your advice for them and how could how can the boss support that person in the right way? That's sort of a two-part question. So what would you say to your younger self about asking for help? And then what would you say out there to people in management positions who want to help? I would say the old cliche of if you don't have your health, you don't have anything applies and therefore do everything you need to do 28 year old self to get the help you need. And, and you don't have to tell everybody because you know, you don't want to overshare either. Mm-hmm. You don't want to overshare about other things that are going on within your life, but, you know, tell the people you need to tell. Um, and it, honestly, if they don't support that, get out mm. because it's not a culture in which you want to build a career or spend another minute of your life. It's just, it, it's toxic. If people don't understand and have the empathy 
for somebody who's literally where where on in, at the same time they would say to somebody who needed you know a, a stent oh of course go ahead right. but you you have mental problems no way you're nuts I mean it, that's just crazy and so no, again no pun intended but if they if you're not finding that in the atmosphere you're in gets go somewhere else that that will support that because it's just too important um, and I would say to managers don't overdo it, but destigmatize it. Talk about it in normal terms. I mean, don't reveal confidences of people, but I would say again, you know, if that manager is in therapy, mention it, or if the, um, you know, but, but be sensitive and explain to your team, listen, you, we're all in this together. Please come to me with anything you need personally that will help you. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a business. The manager wants that person to, be as productive as possible. And so creating an environment where somebody can come and talk to them and say, I'm not doing so well today. Um, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. If you, if you have um, a meeting and somebody, your, your, your head data scientist is miserably depressed, she's not really going to contribute much to your meeting. So have, have giving her the space to come to you and say, I'm just feeling horrible today. I'm just not there for whatever reason, or I need to do this treatment. Again, you don't want to make her feel like she has to spill her guts, but being able to say, I'm just not fully there today. It's, you know, it's, it's good to know as a manager and, you know, to know which of your team members is, is there and is not on certain days and can, who can contribute and who can't, but it's also the right thing to do, you know, just as an empathetic human being. Well, Paul Greenberg, I just I just really want to thank you. I want to wish you good mood, good health. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. I also want to offer the number for the suicide prevention hotline in the US, which is 1-800-273-8255. Or you can visit the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. If there's a young person in your life who you're concerned about, I'd like to recommend the Jed Foundation, which is jedfoundation.org, and that's Jed with a J, J-E-D. You can also always reach out to the crisistextline.org for support, and that's at crisistextline.org. That's it for this week's show. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe and submit a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. And if you have an idea for the show or you want to tell us your story, drop me a note at anxiousachiever at gmail.com or you can tweet me at Mora A.M. That's M-O-R-R-A-A-M. Special thanks to the team at Harvard Business Review my producer, Mary Dew, the team at Podcast Garage, and all of our guests who are telling us their stories from the heart. From the HBR Presents Network, I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. <laughs>